Welcome to Stemivis Podcast Episode 43. In this episode, Peter talks with Dr. Melina Ankafa. Dr. Ankafa is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at UC San Francisco and Director of Education for Neuroscape. Neuroscape is a translational neuroscience center that bridges neuroscience and technology. Melina has spent 16 years at the forefront of learning neuroscience and now applies research to solve real-world problems in education and technology. Melina leads a multi-university national science foundation-funded network studying how executive function contributes to academic achievement and is leading an initiative to launch learning engineering as a new way to build research practice partnerships. She co-founded and is CEO of a non-profit that arms educators and students with practical tools based on learning science, that is, the Institute for Applied Neuroscience. Melina runs an NIH-funded research program that investigates whether technology use is associated with neurocognitive changes. She co-chaired a 2015 National Academy of Sciences Conference on Children and Technology and sits on the board of the Institute of Digital Media and Child Development. She also holds an affiliation with Stanford's Psychology Department and is a MacArthur Scholar. Her work has been highlighted in media outlets such as the New York Times, PBS and Frontline. Her science outreach work includes serving as script supervisor on the Emmy-nominated PBS TV series The Brain with David Eagleman, and as scientific advisor on an award-winning short film about the brain. This is Stemivis, podcast episode 43. Stemivis is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom, or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs, and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change, and why not abundance? This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students, and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash stemiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Well, hi, Melina. Thank you for joining us on Stemiverse Podcast. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Great to be here. How's California? Ah, it's gorgeous today. I'm looking at a view of the San Francisco Bay Area. Ah, that's a beautiful view. Can you see the bridge from where you are? three bridges. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Um, well, my view is not bad either. I'm here in Berrara, which is the outskirts of Sydney, and uh, I can see a lot of trees, actually. Uh, we live right next to the bush. <laughs> Great. So I'd like to ask you to take a few minutes and tell us about yourself and just give us a bit of context uh, about yourself and your research, of course. Oh, sure. So let's see. I have been a neuroscientist for... Oh, goodness, maybe 17 years now. Hmm. And I've always been intensely interested in how the brain learns and then how we express that learning as kind of the compilation of our of our memories because it was it was very clear to me from um, early childhood experiences that kind of who we are and how we show up in the world is really tied very intimately to our memory and our you know memory of, of who we are and when the biology of who we are breaks down when the biology of our brain breaks down particularly affecting the biology of our memory then who we are and how we show up in the world it changes just purely as a function of our biology and so i was really really 
struck by that as a young person and always wanted to try to understand that and remediate that. And so for a long time, I was um, I was really on the track of going into medicine and trying to understand, you know, dementia and neurodegenerative diseases that take away our ability to show up in the world. Um, and it was actually really interesting because I was sitting in my backyard in Newport Beach down in Southern California, and I was studying for the MCATs, which are the entrance exams for medical school here in the States. And I was, I was studying here and my my next door neighbor comes out and he looks over the fence and he says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm studying for the MCATs and I'm really excited about you know, the possibility of going to medical school. And, um, and he says, well, you know, tell me, tell me about what you want to do and why you want to go to medical school. And so I said, you know, I want to go into neurology or neurosurgery because I'm really interested in neurodegenerative diseases. And he says, well, you know, I was actually a neurosurgeon. <laughs> uh, I'm no longer a neurosurgeon because I felt like I was really just a glorified carpenter. I felt like all we did was really tumor excision and pain management because we didn't understand much about the brain. And so if you really want to, you know, do your family members a, a legacy and, you know, understand, you know, do something really big around the brain, you would help build the knowledge base so that the medical practitioners could actually have more information around how to be more effective within these neurodegenerative diseases. And so that really struck me. And I thought about that very deeply. And within a couple of weeks, completely took a left turn. And instead of taking medical school entrance exams, I took the graduate school entrance exams and applied to a PhD program and went into research instead of Hmm. medicine. And so it was a really, it was a really beautiful and powerful conversation for me because it made me realize that, you know, in order for us to actually do effective work in the world, we need to understand the parameters of our world. We need to understand how the world works. And one of the ways to understand how the world works is through research and science. And I didn't actually think that I would have the patience for science, but it turns out did <laughs> I'm really grateful for it because it's really just about discovery and you know finding the best tools or creating the best tools to discover new things about the world that nobody's yeah. ever discovered before, which is so exciting and really fun and really interesting. And so um, I went into a PhD program instead of an MD program and um, have been studying how the brain learns ever since, and it's just been wonderfully good fun. I've taken kind of a non-traditional trajectory because I always had this kind of orientation towards doing rather than um, just kind of sitting back and observing. I I think I have forged a, a different way through research that was really around how do we not only understand the world, but how do we take that understanding and create kind of programmatic practices and policies around it. And so there's not something that's very well uh, encompassed within a traditional research track. And so, you know, while I, I went through my PhD and then did a postdoc at postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford, I realized that I wanted to be kind of closer to impact. It wasn't that research isn't impactful. Research is incredibly impactful. Um, it just sometimes takes a really long time for research to kind of make it into impacting the real world. To be to propagate, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was, I was realizing that there was, you know, we were we were doing all of this really incredible work, bringing you know, Stanford undergrads into our brain scanner and, you know, recording what their brain was doing in real time as they were learning new information and, you know, seeing what's different in the brain from the information that they remembered versus the information they didn't. And, you know, using that to understand the kind of deep processes of how we learn and then how we express that learning. But I realized that it was was pretty far removed from the real world and that you know the, the brains that are learning in the real world are learning in the real world <laughs> not in a brain scanner and so i was 
I was starting to think about, you know, how do we actually study how brains learn in the real world? Um, and, you know, you can't bring a $3 million brain scanner into a classroom. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to miniaturize it. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and, you know, shield it from all of the other worlds <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and all of those. Um, but no, it was it was a really interesting kind of conundrum that I was that I and you know a lot of other researchers in the field were thinking about. And in the meantime, you know, kind of in concert around that, I was also speaking with a lot of my friends who were either teachers or principals or superintendents or, you know, working in the Department of Education at the White House. And and they were all talking about how the things that we know that we as learning scientists have known for maybe 70 or 100 years are not actually things that are known in education, hmm. which blew my mind <laughs> because I felt like, you know, the we've it, it's been such a huge and rich and deep field of inquiry for so long for decades and decades and decades and we know so much about how people learn and how the brain learns that i was absolutely shocked that this isn't something that is taught in teacher preparation programs and so started doing a lot of kind of discovery work in the policy and practice area to see what it is that people know about how people learn from the practitioner and kind of policymaker side of things and realized that there's a huge, huge need, but also a huge hunger from educators and policymakers to really understand the evidence around how people learn. And so that really spurred me and a couple of my colleagues to um, to start a nonprofit organization that is really geared around kind of disseminating what we know around how people learn and talking about how we could take those principles from the science of learning and translate them into practices for you know, really effective evidence-based and evidence-informed education. And so that was that was the genesis of the nonprofit, the Institute for Applied Neuroscience that I co-founded. And that's been so, so, so much fun. And so that's all of the teacher training work that I do that gives rise to the the articles you're mentioning around, um, you know, the myth busting. Um, (laughs) Yes. Actually, you know, one of of my friends um, in in the U.S. Department of Education said to me, you know, we're not actually just we're not starting at zero. We're actually starting at a deficit because there's a huge amount of misinformation that's out there around uh, how people learn. For instance, things like um, learning styles. Like if you if you get if you receive information in the you know preferred mode that you that you, that you think is is best for you. Like you know, if I think I'm a an auditory person and you're trying to teach me how to ride a bike, I won't learn how to mm-hmm. <laughs> ride yes. a bike tell me. Right. Um, and it's this, you know, it's I think there's something like 96% of educators around the globe believe in something like that. High um, point. Yeah, and and there's no empirical evidence in support of that. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you know the type of information that you're learning really dictates the way in which you learn. So again, if you're yeah. trying to learn how to ride a horse, you probably should do that kinesthetically rather than. Um, so there are a lot of learning modes. And, and that yeah. comes up in your research as well, like at the molecular level or neuron, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and But that, that actually raises a really interesting point because, you know, in all of the work that I do through my nonprofit in the teacher training side of things, I do talk about how the brain works and how the brain learns, but I don't talk about it with teachers at the molecular level. I don't talk about it at the synapse level. I talk about it really at the systems level. Um, you know, the, the way in which the systems of the brain interact to allow us to learn. And I think it's a really important distinction to make clear because there's a huge amount of noise and, dare I say, crap <laughs> around um, you know, brain-based learning things and, you know, programs that are all around the brain. And, you know, a lot of it is 
not coming from researchers. A lot of it is coming from people that are um, kind of capitalizing on the fact that everybody is really interested in the brain, really fascinated by the brain, but it's not necessarily being told in a, you know, evidence-based neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to start looking into your specialty, which is educational neuroscience. In our podcast, we've never really had to deal with this concept before, so it's uh, it's all new to me. Would you be able to define what educational neuroscience is, uh, yes, as simply as you can put it, and give us uh, a couple of examples that involve educational neuroscience and the findings as part of your research that have changed uh, the work that a practitioner, say a teacher, would do in the classroom. And perhaps you can put in there some misconceptions. So a teacher, for example, may believe that X is a good practice where you, through your research in educational neuroscience, realizes that actually the X is the exact opposite of what you should be doing, if, if there is such a striking example. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a it's a wonderful question. Um, so, educational neuroscience, as researchers define it, um, is really around just you know how do we understand how the brain learns. So, we typically use you know techniques that allow us to measure brain activity as kids are learning, and see you know, what brain systems are involved in supporting that learning. And so that's that's the the very kind of high level simple version of educational neuroscience. Can I uh, yeah. interrupt you really quickly there? Uh, so, for example, you you mentioned brain uh, system or brain components. So, sorry if my expression is incorrect <laughs> or the terminology that I use, but I imagine now to tie it to what you were saying earlier about different modes of learning and how everybody has got like a, a different um, learning type or style. So what you're saying, is it possible to use some kind of brain scanner and see the different parts of your brain that are activated depending on what kind of visual, auditory, textual cues you might be exposed to and that might reveal what type of learner you are? Great question. Um, and let me clarify just very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea about learning styles is actually one of the, the misconceptions that we mm -hmm. talked about. And that there's actually no definitive evidence in support of the idea that the way in which we learn differently. So let me step back and say one of the reasons that the idea of learning styles is so pervasive is because it really taps into something that we all, I think, know inherently, but also see in our kids and our students, which is that there are individual differences in how kids learn. Absolutely. There are, there are definitely individual differences in how your kid learns versus how his friend um, learns. But the, the idea, though, is that whether those individual differences are captured according to you know, auditory versus visual versus kinesthetic, that doesn't seem to have any research support around it real research support. And so we're really trying to understand how are these brains learning differently and then how do we support that? And so that's what um, educational neuroscience is really trying to figure out. You know, what are the different systems in the brain that are supporting learning across all learners? And then how do those differ across all learners. And so, yes, we can absolutely put a kid or a college kid in a brain scan, record every single neuron that is firing in her brain and see what are the parts of the brain that are more active during the learning of things that they go on to remember later mm -hmm. versus the learning of things that they don't necessarily remember later. So that gives us some insight into how that particular kid learns, but it also gives us some insight into how kids learn writ large, which is really, really interesting. So being able to translate that, and this is the, you ask the absolutely perfect question, hmm. you know, how do we actually translate an understanding of that into 
practice? How do we create educational practices and processes and systems around an understanding of how kids learn? And that's something that I feel like researchers are not well equipped to answer. Yep. <laughs> um, and that's actually where I feel like there needs to be a new a new paradigm or a new a new way of, of working where we actually bring together the researchers who study how people learn and the practitioners who oh, really see. I see. You need a bridge between the practitioners and the scientists, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I feel like the magic is because the researchers can go, can do really deep dives into figuring out how people learn. The teachers can do really deep dives into actually teaching how people how to learn. But until you bridge the wisdom of uh, those... <laughs> I see. That's where the Institute for Applied Neuroscience comes in, right? That's the bridge. Exactly. And mm. that's actually, so we're trying to, we're trying to actually build a movement around that because it really needs to be that we start to de-silo everything <laughs> because yeah. we've got, you know, all of these incredible researchers that are finding these beautiful discoveries about how students learn. And then we've got these beautifully impactful teachers and education leaders who are finding all of these other things about how students learn, but they're not talking to each other. And so we're actually trying to build a boundary agent, you know, somebody that bridges those, you know, the researcher and the practitioner. And I've been proposing along with um, some of my colleagues that it actually should not be a practitioner-oriented thing or a researcher-oriented thing, but actually taking some wisdom from other fields and recognizing that every scientific discipline that's made an impact in the real world hasn't done so through the scientists or necessarily through the practitioners, but actually through the engineers mm. that bridge the scientists and the practitioners, because the engineers are the ones that have the problem-solving processes, right? So they're the ones that understand the science, they understand the problems of practice, and they take the principles from the science and use their processes of engineering to start to prototype and iterate. <laughs> Got it, yes. I, I just uh, had this uh, thought in my mind, there's uh, a new discipline out there called learning engineering. And uh, would that make sense? <laughs> what would the person exactly. do? <laughs> That's exactly my, that is my passion project. So I've actually been... <laughs> by a local, um, by the, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative yeah. to start to build, at least here in the Bay Area, a new field, a new initiative, a new thing called learning engineering. Wow. And it's really, really exciting. And it's not a new term. It's actually been a term mm. that's been around for a while. And one of the biggest kind of advocates for this term is Brewer Saxberg, who is now um, in leadership at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And um, and he's been, you know, doing just incredible amounts of work really advancing this idea. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, the ambassadors for <laughs> um, kind of launching this this idea that learning engineering could actually be the future of education and could be a way in which we could really bring evidence-based education into our policies and practices. Hmm. And a lot of us think about the revolution that happened in medicine about 200 years ago, where medical practitioners used to, you know, do things like use leeches and, you know, bloodletting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then very rapidly within about a generation after they started um, having really deep conversations with the scientists who studied the body, it dramatically up-leveled the practice of medicine. Yeah, right? you, you can pinpoint that to discoveries such as the virus, right, and um, the circulatory system. So uh, there are a few steps that were taken that transformed medicine. So what you're saying is that something similar is happening with uh, in, in learning engineering and you know the science of understanding and learning, right? Once you unlock it, and unlocking it might be understanding more fundamentals about how the brain works, a bit of biology, and off you go. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it needs to be more than just the biology of how we learn. And so mm-hmm. I, that's why I appreciate why you bring up educational neuroscience, because mm-hmm. beyond just educational neuroscience, there's a, a growing movement right now that started a couple of years ago around, well, probably about a decade ago, around the science of learning and how it's not just the neuroscience of learning, but rather the science of learning, so the right. cognitive right. of learning. Yep. The social science of learning, the emotional science of learning, the you know the contextual environmental science of learning. So all of the different variables that go into how people learn are really really important to understand in principle, but then also in practice. And that's where this learning engineering bridge is really important because you know, the scientists really um, start to kind of do this discovery work around you know the science of learning in in principle and in aggregate and then it's really up to the practitioners and I would posit that it's actually up to the learning engineers to start to take those principles of how we learn and start to prototype what that might look like in practice in your particular context right for you as a teacher that has a particular problem of practice let's say you have you have a, a number of students that are having a really hard time paying attention you know how do you actually understand the science of attention and prototype some practices that you might bring into your classroom that might actually start to support some of the students um, in you know, focusing their attention on the, the task at hand, where it may not help all of the students, but really being able to understand how this works within your particular context is so, so, so powerful because then they become, the teacher becomes the engineer, the teacher becomes the person that can architect the learning experience, right? Because they can they can understand the different factors that go into learning and they can play with those factors within their local context. Yes, yep. I wonder uh, what would a breakthrough in the science of learning might look like, say, in the next, say, five or ten years. The reason I'm asking that is that, you know, in in engineering, very often there is that holy grail of something. So room temperature, cold fusion, for example, or getting a battery that can pack, uh, that can move an electric vehicle to a thousand kilometers in a single charge and uh, the unique chemistry in that battery pack. Is it is it reasonable to look for such a breakthrough in the science of learning, considering that you know there's so many variables there? It's not just one thing. But if we wanted to hit say high, and say that this would if if we could do this, it would change everything. What that what would that might be? I think that is exactly the right question, and I think there's probably two or three major answers to that. I think the the very first, I think the primary answer to that would be really understanding individualized mm-hmm. instruction and individualized. How do we, we, you know, we have however many billions of students in the world right now um, learning in billions of contexts and how do we understand how the how the capacity of that student, of that individual student, interacts with the content to be learned and the context of learning. So the the capacity, the context, and the content. How do we understand those three main dimensions in order to individualize instruction or individualize learning experiences for each of those students such that we can unlock... So it's got to be individualized we it, this is not something we can say that we're going to build this machine and everybody's going to use it right it's got to be it's got to be perfect for the individual well it may not necessarily need to be perfect but it needs to it needs to have a certain number of things that are above threshold such that it moves the learner on their learning trajectory mm-hmm. and remediates them if they get off of their learning trajectory. Yeah. So one of the one of the earlier questions that you asked around misconceptions mm-hmm. I think plays into this question really beautifully, which is that you know most of the time we are as teachers and instructors and professors, we're really trying to make learning as easy as possible for our students, right? But if you actually look at the neurobiology of how people learn, how people learn is 
starts with the experience. So what's going on in your brain right now is you, there are parts of your brain that are allowing you to, to hear the words that I'm saying. There are parts of your brain that are allowing you to think about what I'm saying. There are parts of your brain that are allowing you to prospectively, you know, craft the next question that you're going to ask. That means there's tons and tons of activity that's happening in your brain right now. And there's a little structure sitting in the middle of your brain called the hippocampus that's just listening to everything that's happening throughout your brain. It's like a little microphone. (laughs) And it is hearing and picking up and recording into memory the loudest signals. So when you start to shift your attention into thinking about your next question or when you start to shift your attention into thinking more deeply about something that I've just said, those networks in your brain get really active and give off a lot of signal that the hippocampus records into memory. And what's so cool about that is that that means that we start to understand the things that make it into the hippocampus to record into memory. And so if we understand that, we can understand that it's the more activity in your brain that is what the hippocampus picks up. And so we actually don't want to make it so easy. Like if I were telling you things that you'd already heard right now, Yes. You, have a, you have a hard time recording them into memory, Dude, right? Here. <laughs> if I were to make this really easy for you, it wouldn't be generating a lot of brain activity. We actually want to generate a pretty healthy amount of brain activity for the hippocampus to pick up and record into a pretty strong memory. But it's it's this um, it's a it needs to be at the edge of our mastery. Right? It needs to be not too hard that we bail out of the conversation, and it needs to be not too easy that our brain yes. activity too high. So we need to actually start to calibrate the learning experience in a way that's in that sweet spot between not being too easy and not being too hard. Hmm. But what's so interesting is that as teachers, we often try to make things so easy that... <laughs> yes, yes. Right? And so just that one concept, I think, is a really, really, really interesting and powerful um, and impactful concept because trying to kind of get the, the teacher to think about how do we not just make learning easy, but how do we actually make learning to be at the edge of the student's mastery? Now, obviously that, and this is what ties back to your original question, which is the breakthrough. How do we understand where every learner is and where their edge of their mastery is and where their, you know, attention and interest is such that we can actually create these individualized experiences for each of the students when we're trying to teach, you know, 30 to 500 students at the same time. So that's where I feel like a huge, huge breakthrough in the science of learning and the engineering of learning could absolutely be the game changer. And that's really where technology could come in. Um, You know, I don't actually think that technology is the answer. I don't think it's the devil. I think Mm -hmm. that technology is a tool that we can use either for good or for evil. Um, You know, it does allow us to gather tons and tons and tons of information on, you know, an individual learner's profile and trajectory that we might be able to, with the right understanding of how people learn it, learn, it might help us uh, really start to move the needle forward on how we individualize instruction for the billions of students. (laughs) Well, it's... uh great goal to have <laughs> a career career goal wise as you were talking i was um my hippocampus uh, was uh, <laughs> accessing past memories and in our previous one of our previous episodes it was number 35 where we interviewed dr jason zagami so dr zagami is a professor at griffith university and one of the things that it does there is to use eg headsets uh, electro mm-hmm. not sure what the second e is graphs <laughs> yes thank you mm-hmm. uh, headsets so as part of the research those are attached to students and he's trying to build the technology that helps train teachers so that as the teachers are training they can see what their 
instructional activities impact is on the students' brains. So as they are showing them a video, for example, or a PowerPoint, or they're scribbling something on the whiteboard and things like that, uh, or when they say something, what is the impact in real time in the brain? So uh, I thought that that could contribute towards what you're saying to see the individual response of of a brain to what the practitioner is doing in real time. Absolutely. And, you know, the bottom line is there's nothing magic about studying the brain. It's just another source of data for us. So, you know, people who, you know, social scientists who understand the social dynamics of what's going on when we learn and how, you know, putting something in a social um, situation or even, you know, having a kid um, think about the, the uh, you know, the person that you're trying to teach them about in a social context or get a perspective take that mm-hmm. that person, you know, there's, there's something called the social encoding advantage where, you know, if you think about somebody in a, in a social context, you actually tend to remember the information about them more deeply and, and other things. But um, yeah. so, you know, there are all sorts of really interesting things that we know about the brain that if, if you talk to teachers, which you know, I, I do thousands of times a year, a lot of what you know we as, as scientists have found to be you know, really impactful in how people learn, they say, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course we know that yeah. you know, learning in social context is a lot, is a lot you know, more advantage. Uh, advantageous. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this is about, you know, how do we give, how do we arm teachers with the best possible information about how people learn? Yeah. But then how do we also, you know, allow teachers to understand what they already know about how people learn? Mm. And that's most of what I do is really, you know, giving kind of language and, you know, mechanism or process around what teachers already know about how their kids learn but if they they understand how the engine works then they can build a better engine right (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) good analogy (laughs) no it's i i feel like it's really true because you know these teachers are just incredibly wise humans about how people learn and that has not been I think, recognized or appreciated, particularly from at least the researcher side of things. Mm. And so a part of the learning engineering initiative, from my perspective, is really around not just, you know, taking the science of learning and translating it to the practitioners and, you know, throwing the science over the fence and hoping that they'll pick it up (laughs) and make it program or practice around it, but actually really about being in bi-directional dialogue with the practitioners and understanding not only their problems of practice. So what are the what are the big challenges that they encounter in the school um, and in their classroom and with their students, but then also recognizing the wisdom of practice and how that wisdom might actually inform my research questions. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's a two-way street. So the job is not done when you publish a paper in a science journal. Um, There's a lot more work to be done after that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, You know, and we're asking a lot from our researchers. We're asking a lot from our teachers. We're asking a lot from our policymakers. And so that's why I feel like there, there really does need to be a new job description mm. that that is <laughs> the boundary agent between all of the stakeholders that recognize, you know, and understand the science. They recognize the practice. They recognize the policy, and they have the processes of engineering or human-centered design that allow them to, you know, start to prototype and iterate and evaluate. You need uh, let let me coin the word um, perhaps a learning architect. Would that yeah, yeah. <laughs> just borrow, borrowing from organizational science and um, architects there are people that integrate you know, technologies to uh, human systems and um, organizational objectives and so on well it's even more than i mean i i think it's perfect and i've and i've used that a little bit as well um but i I love your description of it because it's so much deeper and richer than the way that i've been thinking about it um when when i talk about it with teachers i talk about how you know the developing brain you know the brain continues to develop until about the mid mid 20s Mm. and the brain is massively 
impacted by the experiences that it develops within. And so when I talk to teachers about how, you know, your kids are spending more time with you than they are in almost any other environment. Mm -hmm. And because these brains are so malleable, you know, you really are a brain architect. You really are. Yes, that's right. Well, we all know the impact that a, a good teacher has on students. Like, in your case, that one person, your neighbor, that is uh, <laughs> essentially changed yeah. the trajectory of your life. But a lot of people say that about the teacher, or at least one teacher in their life that's done that. Yeah, absolutely. And even even when, you know, these are experiences that I can remember, and I'm sure you can, mm. you know, remember some really mm-hmm. pivotal and kind of moments in your life but there are so many things that can impact the the growth and development of a kid's brain oh, the little that, things, right? yeah that they won't necessarily remember yeah. you know things like yeah. you know nutri- nutrition whether they have adequate nutrition whether they have adequate light whether they have you know appropriate caregiving whether you know there are adverse childhood events that happen you know these are all things that yeah. that really really impact the brain. Um, but that actually brings up another misconception that I should probably sure. mention is that, you know, there was a big campaign a while ago around how, you know, the first three years are the most um, important um, in, in a brain's life. And and it's true to some extent, but there was, a I think, a very dangerous message that came out of that, which is that and this wasn't intentional, but this is what the public kind of took out of it, which is that if a kid was exposed to a very um, kind of traumatic environment in the beginning or a very kind of impoverished environment, that it was, you know, unremediable and that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kid was not, um, they couldn't come back from that. And yeah. the brain is just incredible, incredible resilient force it is always always learning and growing and um, you know the plasticity of the brain the brain's ability to learn continues throughout life you know it's, it's very very plastic in the early parts of the the lifespan you know in early childhood and then it also has this kind of second window of opportunity as um, our colleagues in adolescent neuroscience would say you know during during puberty during adolescence and then but then it continues to be plastic. I mean, there's, you couldn't remember yeah. what you had for breakfast this morning unless your brain was plastic, unless it was still being able to learn things every day. Um, and so it's really important for us to remember and understand that the brain's ability to bounce back from... Oh, yeah. From, uh, is uh, there is, yeah, that's, um, that's a misconception that uh, became I became very aware of when we had our kids here and everybody yeah. was on us about the first three years uh, and like there was a lot of pressure not to stuff it up, <laughs> but that's one mm-hmm. of the misconceptions. It's like similar to the 10% uh, right. myth, I think the brain plasticity seems to be uh, a scientifically accepted view of how the brain changes over time into adulthood as well. Like um, there's a lot of stories, uh, research on injured brains and how function was recovered by uh, moving functionality from the destroyed areas to other intact areas of the brain and so on. But that also happens at the cognitive uh, level as well and memory level. So is brain plasticity from what you have found something that remains even after puberty? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. So that's exactly, exactly right. Because again, so, so the way that you form a memory is when your brain forms a new connection or a new series of connections. And that's yeah. fundamentally plasticity. That is exactly. So, I suppose as long as you stress your brain, right? That's where lifelong learning comes in. It, it doesn't, it's not just good for you, but it's good for your brain. It keeps it active, creating new synapses, constantly changing, yeah. and that's a good thing. Yeah, 
Absolutely. But even, even more than that. So we were talking about the hippocampus earlier mm-hmm. and saying that the hippocampus is constantly recording what your brain is, what the rest of your brain is kind of doing. Um, well, what the rest of your brain is doing is forming new connections. So again, you were, you know, right now you're you know thinking about all of these different things. That process of thinking about all these different things is inherently forming new connections. Mm. And the hippocampus is the thing that's going to strengthen those connections. It's going to, you know, make sure that that plasticity is enduring. And it's actually really interesting because we think we understand why we sleep now because sleep, one of the biggest things that happens during sleep is the brain starts to, at certain stages of sleep, the brain replays the events of the day and the and the events or the thoughts or the feelings or, you know, all of the things that your brain has done, when it gets replayed, that actually starts to strengthen the plasticity, strengthen the connections that oh, were. Yeah. I get it. So my, my analogy here would be like a backup. So I've got all that stuff in my primary me- memory and then during sleep, I make copies into my long-term backup so that's what makes memory strong and uh, enduring exactly and so we call that consolidation so we've we've gone through the first two stages of memory so we've talked about the encoding stage of memory now which is the original experience and so your brain is busy making all of these connections while you're listening to what i'm saying while you're thinking about what you're thinking while you're feeling what you're feeling your brain is making all of these connections the hippocampus is encoding those into memory. And then tonight, when you go to sleep, it will replay the things that were most interesting, most important, most salient. And during that replay, that will strengthen and solidify or consolidate the um, the plasticity that happened yeah. initially during encoding. I actually, I use the analogy, um, particularly in, with kids when I do all the work that I do in schools and talk about, you know, making jello, you know, first mm-hmm. when you make jello, it's liquid and then you put it in the fridge and when you put it in the fridge, it becomes more solid. And so that putting jello in the fridge is what happens during sleep. Yeah. And so that's a really beautiful principle from the science of learning that can be put into practice very easily, right? Because if you know that sleep consolidates the learning, strengthens the learning that happened throughout the day, then just making sure that you put a little bit of sleep in between the learning and the testing can actually have dramatic effect. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially for kids, yeah. Kids get your sleep, uh, but also sleep in between, <laughs> in between your test and your learning. Absolutely. And so, and that's what's so funny because then that, that brings up, you know, a lot of us think that we need sleep in order for us to be awake and alert and ready to learn, which is totally true. And there's a a much more powerful function of sleep, which is actually to solidify the learning Mm. that's happened throughout the day, right? It's not just get you ready for learning, (laughs) but actually strengthen the learning. Exactly. So it's, uh, you just, you both regenerate, but also consolidate and that tells me what that explains to me why i hardly remember anything from probably the first five years of my kids lives oh. <laughs> it was getting any sleep <laughs> yeah. that makes sense yeah. <laughs> melinda i'm just mindful of time and um i've got uh, at least one more main question that i'd like to ask and there's, there's a couple of smaller ones after that but the the thing that i wanted to ask next is about multitasking so it's a busy world out there and uh kids' lives are busier than ever, especially, you know, you've got your school, you've got your homework, you've got sports, you've got after-school activities. Even when you're at home, there's a million things happening. And I, I personally feel that that is detrimental to being able to, you know, the, the ability to focus on uh, on a task and to do that task well. So, But I accept that it's part of today's life, like modern life. What is... Uh, the view of a researcher on the topic in terms of like how damaging is all this multitasking both to a quality of life and perhaps to uh, like learning and uh, comprehension, especially when those activities are learning activities. And do you have any tips that we can apply to try and uh, you know, reduce the damage? 
Yeah, great question. So, so this was actually the topic of my um, of all my PhD work. Uh, you know, how do we learn under conditions of divided attention um, and learn under conditions of distraction? Because you know, our our world is becoming a much more distractible and distracting world. And uh, and and one corollary to that is how is technology contributing to that? So, how is all of our interaction with technology and media? Um, affecting our ability to learn. Um, and so I can, that's a whole, a whole separate line of research that I've been working on lately as well. Um, but in terms of multitasking, it's important. I think multitasking gets very misaligned. You know, there are certainly things that are not wonderful about multitasking while learning, but it shouldn't be this writ large kind of thing that is so terrible. I think we need to have a little bit more a nuanced view around multitasking because for instance right now i'm talking to you but i'm also gesturing with my hands right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, i'm you know taking notes to make sure that i can address what you're saying and those are those are all separate tasks that i'm doing multiple separate tasks they happen to be tasks that are all in service of this one particular goal that i have which is to effectively with you and so in that sense multitasking is actually seems to be supportive of the ultimate goal where it becomes a challenge is when the multiple tasks are actually at odds with each other right so it's when we're you know when we have the sound of a tv in the background while we're trying to read text that has language and we're hearing words that are coming from a, a television you know when when there is interference that comes from the same trying to process the same type of information so if i'm trying to process language and i'm getting language in from the background of the tv and i'm trying to process the language of my homework mm-hmm. that's going to interfere right and so it's actually not going to create a strong signal in my brain for the learning information that the hippocampus could pick up, right? So the idea is you really want to create the highest fidelity signal for the hippocampus, the strongest signal for the hippocampus to pick up and record into memory. If we've got some noise coming into that, if we've got some um, interference coming into that from other sources, then that's going to degrade the signal. It's going to you know, put more noise into it. And so we're not going to have a stronger, longer lasting, richer memory. And so that's where we need to actually start to think about what are the types of things that we're multitasking around and are they interfering with each other so if i'm trying to learn if i'm trying to remember what you are saying or what you know, what my teacher is saying it would be really important for me to pay you know pretty focused attention to my teacher and there are other things that can increase the signal like you know that what the teacher is saying being you know self relevant to the student or socially relevant or you know have some sort of meaning you know all of those mm-hmm. are, are factors that can increase the signal that the hippocampus encodes into memory but but the, the main point is if we can actually um, devote undivided attention to the thing that we're trying to learn then that will increase the brain signal that will be right. encoded into yeah of experienced that myself like over a few years maybe the last couple of years i've been very careful to not mix my signals when i work in something so i block out dedicated time on a single topic in order to avoid contaminating my work with other work outside but i think i also wanted to ask you on the same topic Apart from having the signal coming from, say, a primary source, let's say that you're listening to your teacher talking, so that would be mostly auditory, right? Can we reinforce and strengthen the signal by essentially copying the information in other media, like taking notes, for example, looking at a visual on the screen? It could be even a PowerPoint, infamous PowerPoint, or anything that reinforces it, but still with uh, serving the same purpose 
Sure, absolutely. So you bring up um, two really good points, which um, the first of which is called dual coding. So it's really helpful for the brain to have the same kind of congruent information coming in at the same time. So being able to, let's say, see a representation of what the teacher is trying to teach and then having the teacher, you know, talk about it in a, in a comfortable way. Where it begins, so that's dual coding. So you've got to say an auditory and a visual signal that are both congruent with what the teacher is trying to teach. Um, where it becomes really unhelpful is when, say, the PowerPoint is incongruent with what the teacher is saying. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> and then has to actually switch their attention or divide their attention between the visual and auditory input, yeah. and that's what becomes um, distracting. And so the dual coding part of it is try to make sure that your multiple signals are completely congruent such that you know, you're, you're giving people support from the visual domain, the auditory domain, the kinesthetic domain, whatever, um, such that it's actually you know, advancing um, the same message rather than dividing the attention. Yeah. And the other thing that you talk about is about you know, making sure that you're spending some you know, really good time on a single task. Because when you switch to another task, there's something called a task switch. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or a yeah. task. And depending on how deep you need to process or think about one task and the other task, that will actually depend on the cost that it takes for you to switch between the tasks. And so it's a, um, you know, it's a really prevalent thing within cognitive science to look at, you know, what is it, how much of a cost is it for you to switch between doing X and doing Y? And, you know, there are some studies that have shown, you know, with, with technology that it could take up to 20 minutes for you to recover your attention. Oh, wow. it's a lot, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of minutes. So <laughs> yeah. the, the terminology you use is very similar to that in computer science where you've got the same concept of context switching. So when you get your processor to move from running one program to the other very quickly, it's not just a matter of changing you know the line of code that you're executing but the processor then has to load all of the data that relate to executing the new program and that is part of the cost of content switching and the human brain works in a very similar way exactly you hit the nail on the head yeah (laughs) it makes intuitive sense okay it's funny how we understand how computers work first and then we use those learnings to understand how we work. I find well, we that <laughs> metaphors, right? So the yeah, brain, you know, we yeah. process so much information that it's really it's an easy way to organize information. Mm. It, we have a schema or a metaphor or an analogy. Those are actually incredible, incredible ways to teach because it activates something that we already know. Yeah. And then you can just use that as as the kind of framework to teach something new. Um, rather than because it takes a really long time and a really lot of computational energy to create a new schema or a yeah. new framework or a new you know way of understanding things. So if you can al- already activate something that people already know, yeah, which then is it actually, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, that's another good technique as well for teachers um, to use analogies in their teaching, just um, you know to make a new topic seem like a familiar topic because of a prior experience. That the student has had. So. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually something I would recommend um, for the teachers listening. Um, there are a number of great books, but um, one of my favorite books is called The ABCs of How We Learn yeah. Yeah, by Dan Schwartz and Jessica Tseng. And I always forget my friend, who is the third author. <laughs> and it's a really wonderful book. It, it's based on a, a Stanford course that is taught by Dan Schwartz, who's the, the dean of the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. And it's one of our, it's one of the most popular courses at Stanford around 26 different strategies based on the science of learning. How do you get that? Thank you. Yeah. yeah and <laughs> the first A is for analogy, which is <laughs> what you just brought up. So. There you go. Yeah. No, the, I was going to ask you about books. So thank you for bringing this up. And uh, this is this sounds like an awesome book. I'm going to look it up and include it in the show notes as well. Uh, any other books that you would recommend people to get Definitely. hands on? Yep. So I always recommend a book called Make It Stick. Mm-hmm. And then there's another book called Social 
that is really um, around the social brain and how how we can start to understand how to harness the social brain in support of um, teaching and learning practices. And that's by mm. Matt Lieber. Great, thank you. And then there's another book called um, The Age of Opportunity by Larry Steinberg. Yeah, Age of Opportunity. Yep, and that's really around the adolescent brain, and he defines adolescence as between the ages of about ten to twenty-five. So there are a lot of a lot of kids that are fall under that yeah, window. Yeah, and that's really about how do we understand the science of adolescent development, and again harness that understanding to um, support good teaching and learning practice. I still feel like I should read that book, even though I'm over twenty-five. I might get a <laughs> well, you do have kids that are within that, that age range. They're starting to be within that age range, so yeah. I would definitely recommend it. They are within Absolutely. that range, yeah. Great. Any applications that you can't live without? So the type of applications that you use to perhaps make sense of the world, to document, to archive, help you with recall, uh, Evernote, for example, comes to mind for myself. Anything like that that you would recommend? Yeah, great question. So I do use Evernote pretty extensively. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm just a big Post-it girl. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Post-its all over the place. So nice old old technology. But yeah, in terms of in terms of archiving and organizing things, Evernote is probably the the thing mm. I use the most particularly because there are lots of different types of ways to use it beyond just taking notes because, you know, capture web pages and forward emails and, um, you know, all of those. It's um, grown a lot over the years. Do you walk around with um, a notepad and pen in your bag? I do. Um, And that actually brings up one last thing and then I am going to need to... um, (laughs) But um, so one last thing is um, you had you had spoken about um, taking notes earlier, and it's really interesting because there's there's some really interesting data around um, taking notes with a pen versus mm. taking notes with a laptop, and these are um, studies that have been done on college kids. Uh, so we can take that with a grain of salt, whether it's appropriate for younger kids. But people find that if you take notes with a laptop, you tend to not remember the inf- everything being equal. You tend to not to remember the information as deeply as if you take notes with a pen. Yeah. And the important thing to remember about that, though, is that it's not actually about the note taking itself or that, you know, it's technology versus a pen. But it's about the the way in which you're taking notes because most people are not as fast when they write with a pen or a pencil versus when they write uh, on Right. So because they're not as fast, they have to think about what is important to capture. And so they're actually processing the information more deeply. They're, they're thinking about what's important. They're going to deeper levels of thinking, deeper levels of processing and consolidating in order to take the notes physically. Whereas people who are much faster at taking notes with their laptop, they tend to just transcribe what they're hearing. So they're just listening passively and transcribing it. So that's a a more superficial level of processing. And so it's not activating your brain as much. And so the hippocampus doesn't have as deep signal to process. And so it's not creating as deep of a memory. And you can, if, if you, if you're taking notes through your laptop and then you go back and you think about it more deeply and, you know, do some sort of consolidation after that, then that's great. But it's a really interesting thing to be able to, to get to kind of the bottom of why things work, why people learn better in certain circumstances so that you can get away from being prescriptive of like, don't take notes with your laptop and instead say, okay, if you have to take notes with your laptop, make sure that you're then going back and thinking more deeply about the information and doing some sort of Mm. kind of deeper processing with it. What comes to mind now is uh, slow food versus fast food, right? And how slowing down when you eat and even when you prepare your food the outcomes are always better and the only thing that you essentially give up is time but the results are amplified because you invested that time and uh, that slowing down of externalizing your thoughts seems to have a similar effect when it comes to memory understanding cognition everything that happens to the brain needs time indeed great well 
Thank you, Melina. Uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with you and ask questions, what is the best uh, way for them to do so? Assuming that you do want people to get in touch with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we're always looking for we're always looking for partners in the the research space and the and the teaching space. They can they can certainly um, go to our research website, which is neuroscape.ucsf.edu, mm-hmm. which is all of the research work that I do. And then um, my nonprofit is scienceforgood.org. And that should have a, a contact page as well. And then they awesome. can find me on Twitter at NeuroMelina. Got it. Thank you. It's going to be in the show notes. So thank you, Melina. Really interesting conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for making the time. Absolutely. And thanks for everything that you do to advance all of this great work. My pleasure. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Melina are available on our website, texplore.com forward slash p forward slash stemverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This Stemverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.